Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Welcome, everyone, to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. You know, Tane, we really do read all those comments and emails that our uh, legions of fans send us. Well, we read the nice ones. (laughs) Yes, true. Some of you have asked that we create an episode on the best practices associated with taking a guilty plea. Somebody else has asked for a session on hot topics or breaking law. And some people have asked for the latest decisions from the appellate courts. Well, this episode's kind of a good hybrid of both of those. So this topic that we're going to have today, taking a guilty plea, we're going to look at it in several episodes because, well, frankly, our first shot at this was a 28-page outline, and Tane looked at it and said, that's really good, but we'll be there for days. So, <laughs> And our listeners will not. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so, Tane, thanks for helping me get out of that rabbit hole I'd sure. found myself in. Um, every year at NJO, we provide the new student, the new judges with a, our students, the new judges, with an outline, a plea outline. And the plea outline that we give them and that sort of a lot of this is based on with all the end notes and all that stuff, it's going to be online on our website. Tame, what's that, what's that address? It's goodjudgepod.com. That's right. So, if you need this and if you want to go through it step by step from the beginning to the end, you can go get that uh, outline and use it that way. But we're not going to talk about it that way today. We, we thought maybe it would be more, it would be better to sort of group things by subject. You know, Tane, you tell all the NJO students about issue spotting and our goals. And it, right. I mean, uh, we can't tell you every detail of everything that you're going to need to know, but what we can try to teach you is what are the red flags? What are the issues? What are the things to look for? And so the way we've arranged this podcast about uh, guilty pleas is to try to get into some of those headings and show you some things to look for. So if you were to take a guilty plea, understand that the legal requirements placed on the judge, at least for superior court judges, can be found from Uniform Superior Court Rule 33.2 to 3310. That's 33.2 to 33.10. We do things very differently across Georgia, and there is no single way to, a single correct way, I guess, to take a plea. Tane and I, as you know, we, we do, a, we agree on a lot of things, but even on this, we, we have radically different styles. So there's no single right way to do it, correct, Tane? That's right. And I think one of the first things to just be aware of when you are doing a guilty plea is even though it's really routine for us and we do thousands of them a year, um, always remember that you're making a record. And always remember that that's the reason that it's important is that every single one of these is uh, making a record for the future. Tane, you and I both have colleagues who have just made a numbers decision and have decided they're not, they don't care what 33.2 to 33.10 says or what Boykin says or whatever. 
and they just don't do this. Right. I, I've heard several judges say, look, I do thousands of these a year. Uh, if I don't go through all of these rights, it saves me a lot of time. And besides that, how often does anybody, um, you know, try to appeal a, a guilty plea? And so I'm just going to play the numbers and save myself a lot of time. While they are correct about that, that's just not my philosophy. How about you, Wade? You know, I just hate to lose a guilty plea. You think if, it, if the case had victims and lawyers and and somehow you took a guilty plea and it got reversed because you didn't take the four seconds that it would have taken to ask some random question. You know, sometimes the people that we sentence as a, at a guilty plea have a lot of time on their hands going forward. Well, not only that, Wade. You know, we're dealing with people's constitutional rights here. And, and you and I are kind of both on the same page on this for sure. And that is whenever I'm dealing with someone's constitutional rights, it's also important to me. Let me ask you this. If you were to take an average of how long a guilty plea, a felony guilty plea takes in your court, it's probably how long? 10 minutes, 12 minutes. Yeah, that's kind of where I am. And that's plea plus sentencing usually. Yeah, that's usually everything. That's usually till next. Yes. So, folks, we're going to examine the issues this way. We're going to break it up this way. We're going to start talking about the defendant's status to enter a plea. Then we're going to talk, to, talk about the impact of that plea on the defendant. Then we're going to talk about the defendant's understanding of the charges. And then we've sort of got to catch all other that, that allowed us to sort of group a lot of things that are not necessarily related to one another. And if you look at the guilty plea forms that we provide for you, you can find all of those categories in the guilty plea forms. If you look at the questions, you can see that that's, that's how they're arranged. So we're going to discuss lots of issues today, and we're going to do it in a really rapid fashion. But just remember sort of an overall warning in this episode, we're going to talk about some things repeatedly and you may hear it talk about something over here and then 10 minutes later, talk about it again. We didn't miss it. We didn't misunderstand that we've already talked about that once. Understand that we are required by law to advise a defendant of all of the direct consequences. Like you might go to jail, you might lose your right to a jury trial, but we're not generally required to tell the defendant about what they call collateral consequences. Things like, hey, do you know if you enter this plea, you might lose your driver's license or you might be declared an HV. So that's just an example of three or four different times that, that the issue of direct versus collateral consequences is going to come up during this podcast. So just understand that we're not, it's not that we're missing it, but that the, um, it's not that we're missing that we've already talked about it, but it's relevant in different spots. Right. And also understand that not everything that we're talking about is a legal obligation on the judge. However, um, if the judge doesn't put some of these things on the records, it could give rise to something like an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. And so there are things that, again, you need to be issue spotting on, and that's what we're going to try to give you a heads up on today. So, Tane, let's start with 33.5A. Tell the people a little bit about what that warns us not to do. Well, that's a really important one. It tells us that we are not to participate in plea negotiations between the state and the defendant. And so, you know, what that means is uh, essentially no means no. <laughs> do, don't get involved in the negotiations. Don't say things like, well, I'm, I'm not going to accept a two-year sentence, but I would accept a five-year sentence. That's a no-no. That's something that this rule prohibits. And make sure that as you go through this process, do not, please, Lord, tell the, the defendant that there is a trial tax, and some people don't know what that means. 
a trial tax is this. If you go to trial and exercise your constitutional rights, you're going to get sentenced more harshly than you would if you just entered a plea. So, you know, include that in your computation, Mr. and Ms. Defendant. We actually have a rule that says that's just, you cannot do that, and that is just simply wrong. That's rule 33.6B. And again, all this is on the, the notes that is on the website, goodjudgepod.com. But just understand that it says you cannot punish the defendant more harshly because he exercised his constitutional right to go to trial. That's right. So the next thing we have is um, we've provided you with written forms, and I'm sure in your jurisdiction there's uh, some type of written form that you use in every plea. The rule on that, though, is don't rely exclusively on written forms to make your record on a guilty plea. I mean, forms are great. You should use forms, but don't rely on them exclusively to make the record. You should actually say the things out loud in order to make the record. You know, there's a case that we cite in the outline, and and it's a longer quote, but it says, Even so, the record of the plea does not consist solely of the transcript. It includes a written plea and acknowledgement and waiver of rights form bearing the signatures of the defendant and his lawyer. The point being, there are times we accidentally say things incorrectly or miss something or maybe something has changed and our forms are dated or whatever. If the written waiver covers that issue, you're covered. But you can't rely solely on the written forms, right? Yeah, I mean, I look at it as the belt and suspenders technique, you know. Uh, You've got a written form out there. It's got everything written down on it that you probably need. But you're also going to say those things out loud. And and there's a real good reason for that. Sometimes these things come back a a long time in the future. And I don't know how your jurisdiction works. But on occasion, very rare occasion, forms get lost. I mean, in the electronic age, that's not as common as it used to be. But when we were dealing with sheets of paper for every single plea that we had, we might lose the Boykin rights form in a particular case. But if you had a transcript where you also read it out to the defendant and they responded to it, then you had the belt and the suspenders. So let's talk now about the defendant's status to enter a plea. Tane, what are we talking about when we talk about the defendant's status? Well, the things that essentially qualify him or allow him to be able to enter a plea uh, that will hold up under constitutional scrutiny. Tane, I swear in the defendant. I don't think there is a legal requirement, although there are some cases that say that that's a best practice. Do you do the same? Absolutely. Um, You know, I might not swear a defendant in when I'm doing an arraignment or something like that, but I feel like that when we're taking a guilty plea, having the defendant under oath and being able to say, not only did you answer these questions, you answered them under oath. I just think that's important. How do you discuss with a defendant their mental health status? In other words, if they've ever been treated? Sure. The question that I usually ask them is, have you ever been at a uh, a patient in a mental institution or under the care of a psychiatrist or a psychologist? And if they answer yes to that question, then I do a little bit of further exploration. I'll say something along the lines of, as we stand here today, are you suffering from any kind of disability or disorder that would in any way keep you from being able to understand what we're doing? And if they say no, then I say something along the lines of, so in other words, you understand where we are and what we're about to do. Just something that simple. I usually ask the defendant, have you ever been diagnosed with a mental health condition, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, or anything like that? And usually they clue into where we are. Our form, one of our written forms, the, the very first question is, are you currently suffering with any mental health condition? 
that would prevent you from from entering this plea. I don't know that the defendant always knows what that means. The defendants that appear in front of me who say, yes, I have been previously diagnosed with a mental health condition, typically can tell me the medication they're on. They can tell me they took it the way it was prescribed. It was taken, it was taken last night or this morning. And we don't usually have a lot of issues with that. Yeah. Um, Wade, one of the next things that I always ask the defendant about, uh, and it's really one of the first things on my plea form, is uh, is intoxication. Um, I ask them whether they are currently under the influence of any alcohol, drugs, uh, pills, or anything, prescription medications, anything like that. Yeah, I do the same thing. You know, remember... Tane said this accidentally one time, and it was it's pretty astute, and so it had to be by accident. Absolutely. But but the appellate court can't see into the courtroom. So if, for example, they don't know the defendant is in custody, they don't know that he or she is wearing a jumpsuit and belly chains as opposed to a suit and tie. And so it, if the defendant appears to be intoxicated, they can't see that. You better make a record if you are now going down that that rabbit hole. Yeah. And don't forget, too, you know, just because they're in custody, I mean, they could be on some medications prescribed for them at the jail. They could be taking the wrong medications prescribed at the jail. Uh, You know, there could be something, there could be a problem, and you need to explore that. So the next thing we talk about is educational background of the defendant. And this sort of gets you to two points. you got to be non-condescending when you talk about this. Because you have gone to college and law school, there are a lot of people in front of you who have not, some of which have not finished middle school. And so when you ask the defendant, hey, how far did you go in school? And they say 10th grade. Did you ever get a GED? No, I didn't. So you can't read, can you? Now, that's, that's, that's not going to get there. Right. I think the better way to do that is saying, how far did you go in formal education? They usually understand that. And I will say, do you ever struggle with reading or writing? And they'll say, no, no, I don't struggle at all. Because their ego, a lot of times, will tell them they, they need to say that. And I say, look, I'm not trying to suggest anything, but I've got a bunch of papers up here with your initials or your signature on it. I want to make sure either it, you could read it or it was read to you. Is that true? We're now done with that. The other thing that it sort of gets you to is sort of the next issue on our list, and that's English proficiency. If you go through some of these questions that are not yes, no, yes, no, and you get some people to give you some words and and have some interaction, you start realizing that you are making a record as to that defendant's ability to properly and understand and converse in English as well. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting thing, and I didn't even really think about it until we're doing this, but one of the things that I do that's not on my plea form, the first question that I ask the defendant, actually there are two two questions that aren't on the plea form that I ask them first. The first thing that I ask them is, um, uh, you understand that in order to enter this plea, you actually have to give up certain rights. And then they answer that question. I, I don't know when I started doing that, but I always ask that. And then I go in to explain what I'm about to do, which is I'm about to ask you a series of questions uh, about those rights to make sure that you do understand what you're giving up if you enter this plea. And then I say to them, are you able to hear and understand my statements and questions? Um, and one of the reasons that I ask that is, you know, you may have a, def- a defendant who has a hearing problem or you may have a, a person who's got some sort of comprehension problem and you want to make sure that you're communicating right off the bat with them. I also, though, one of the things that I've started doing in those cases in the last five, six, seven years is if there's an interpreter who's interpreting the plea, what I will say is, are you able to hear and understand my statements and questions through the interpreter? 
because they may later say, I don't understand this interpreter. or He wasn't doing a good job of interpreting for me. And you also may have a defendant that has an attitude problem. That is absolutely right. And you might be able to sort of detect that when they go, yeah. You know, and all of a sudden now we know where we stand and so we know what we need to do. Exactly. And I say, I usually say, are you able to read and write in the English language? And if they say no and they say they're speaking Spanish, I will say, can you read and write in Spanish? Believe it or not, there are a lot of defendants that I've seen that cannot read and write in their native language same, that they went to third or fourth grade. Yeah, same here. So the next issue we want to talk about, I guess broadly, is coercion. You need to make sure that you have on the record whether the defendant agrees that he or she has not been forced or threatened in any way to enter this plea. Or promised anything. Yeah, and those are the kind of things that that the law says is very important that you get on the record and it's nice to have that verbal response, even though you may have it on your written form. Now, Tane, we've sort of already talked about this, but there are some things I intentionally ask. For example, how old are you? Do you work? Those sort of things. And I intentionally ask that not because I, you know, I think that that is some legal requirement, but because I want to make sure that I am conversing with the defendant, that they are responding and they haven't sort of memorized having watched me done this, do this 10 times earlier in that morning that they're not haven't sort of memorized the yes, no's, yes, no's. And they can't come back later and say, I had no idea. I, you know, basically functionally illiterate and I don't know. I don't know what I signed. I don't know what I said. When I get into that dialogue back and forth, I think it helps an appellate court. It would help me remember that we were in a back and forth and it was conversational. It was not halted and strained. And you make an important point there too, Wade. The way that my plea form is laid out and the one that I've seen that you use is laid out, all of the answers to all of the questions are not the same. In other words, the answer, the appropriate answer to some of them is yes, the appropriate answer to some of them is no, so that the defendant can't just get into saying yes, 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 to, the, to answer every question, because they could easily not comprehend anything you're saying and be able to answer the questions correctly. If you throw them a curveball every once in a while, then at least you know they may be tracking what you're saying. That's kind of how you got through high school, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Always answer C? Yes. <laughs> satisfaction with the attorney. The next issue broadly that you need to talk to a defendant about is his or her satisfaction with their attorney. And I always ask if the defendant is satisfied with his or her attorney's representation. Now, there are a lot of appellate decisions where it was the defendant comes back later and claims ineffective assistance of plea counsel. And the appellate court notes the defendant was asked if they were satisfied with their attorney. And they said yes during the plea colloquy. I don't know that that is always going to win the day, but I really do think that it, it really helps. Remember, he was under oath, so he told you yes then, but now he's saying no? Hmm, that's problematic for the defendant sometimes. Yeah, and I think I think in your situation where you're engaging them in some conversational, uh, you know, parts during your plea, uh, that helps in terms of a, of a later an analysis of whether the defendant felt the ability to speak up and say something, too. They weren't just required to answer the questions yes and no. Good point. Obviously, you don't address this in a pro se case, and we will address, we'll have a Ferretta session. You mean I shouldn't ask them, are you satisfied with your own representation? No, because typically the answer would be, if I'm being honest, no, Judge, I'm not. <laughs> this was stupid. 
Um, so that's sort of the, the, the status of the defendant questions. Now we're going to turn to the impact of the plea on that defendant and some of the things that impact that. Let's, and we're going to have to go a little bit slower here and talk about citizenship. You know, Tane, when Encarnacion and all of those cases came out, Padilla and all those cases a couple years ago, it really threw people for a loop. Why don't you just explain to our listeners generally what all of those cases are about? Sure. Uh, as we were talking about earlier, some of the direct consequences of a plea are things that the defendant is required to be informed of at the time of the plea. One of those direct consequences for someone who is not legally in the country um, can be automatic deportation. Now, that causes us and the lawyers to have to know a little something about federal law. Um, what what offenses will cause you to be automatically deported under federal law? And what the case law says, starting with Padilla and then uh, going through Encarnacion and, and um, Adeque and some of the other cases, um, says is it is incumbent upon the lawyer, the attorney for the defendant, to inform them of those direct consequences of deportation. However, what it really says is the trial judge needs to check and make sure that the defendant understands that there is a direct consequence of deportation if they accept the plea. You know, Rule 33.8 specifically says we are required to advise a non-citizen defendant that the plea may, and I'll put that in quotes, may have an impact on the defendant's immigration status. The subsequent, the subsequent cases like Adequay, and that's cited 302 Georgia 412, 2017 case. It said, you know, it is not enough to say may if the offense shall cause you to be deported. And a lot of judges, when this case came out, they said, oh, my God, I have got to go learn now all of the now I've really got to go learn the immigration law. You don't. It's an obligation on the defense lawyer. But, Tane, let me ask you something. If the defense lawyer fails to do this with a non-citizen and they file an appeal and claim ineffective assistance, I don't know, eight years later, what's going to happen in that case? It's still going to come back to me, Wade, unless I've retired or uh, lost my election in, in the ensuing eight years. So on the, on the order from the appellate courts, do they say attorney disbarred? No. They, they say, say Judge Kell reversed and remanded. So that's the kind of thing that you cannot learn this if you want to. And you could just say may. That's the only thing that the uniform rule requires. But when the case comes back, it's coming back to you. And you're going to have to actually deal with you have, quote unquote, lost a guilty plea. That's right. So the, the offenses of deportation, we're not going to go through that on here. But guess where we have it, Tane? Is, is it at goodjudgepod.com? On the trial outline at goodjudgepod.com, we actually have all of the offenses where you can look it up if it becomes an issue. They're all in the end notes. Now, Tane, our next issue is parole eligibility and recidivism punishment and whether or not the waiver is a part of the plea agreement that is actually set in front of you. Right. The recidivist punishment we're talking about is 1710.7 A and C, and we'll talk a little bit more about how that impacts the defendant in a few minutes. But tell the folks sort of generally what about that Alexander case. 
Sure. So in the Alexander case, a plea was reversed and remanded for a hearing under the Strickland case, uh, which is basically ineffective assistance of counsel, because the recidivist notice under, uh, in that case, under 17-10-7C wasn't waived by the state, and neither the trial judge nor the trial counsel advised the defendant that he would not be eligible for parole because he was a recidivist under subsection C. Tell you a couple things. Do you see a lot of these plea agreements where they don't waive recidivism notice? We really don't. In my jurisdiction, uh, the prosecutors generally use that recidivism notice effectively as a bargaining chip uh, in in plea negotiations. And so, ninety nine percent of the time in the cases that I see, the notice ha- either hasn't been sent or is being withdrawn as a part of the plea negotiation. So I don't deal with this nearly as much as as maybe they do in some other jurisdictions. But make clear, folks, that that you put that on the record. Hey, are you waiving any pre- any recidivism notice? And they might say, hey, judge, we never filed it. Or, yes, we are. But if they say no, not only are they required to introduce the evidence that supports that, that notice into the record, but they are required to, and they being the prosecutor, they are required to, after they introduce that, that evidence, you are required as the judge to make sure the defendant understands you are no longer, you're not going to be eligible for parole under these facts if this is a subsection C notice. So, Tane, the next thing you put on the outline was future service, excuse me, future sentence determination. Right. And I just put a bunch of question marks because I wasn't really sure what that meant. What did you mean? Sure. So you are also required to let the defendant know that the plea that he's entering today can and likely will be used against him or, or in a future sentence determination if he should ever again plead guilty or be found guilty of another crime. So in other words, even if you enter a first offender plea, if you come back up on a subsequent felony crime, the prosecutor is going to be able to argue in sentence determination that the judge should take that into consideration in, in determining a future sentence. Not as a recidivism issue, but no. just take it into consideration. That's right. Just in just in the uh, sentencing. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think that I, I know I don't say that. Okay. We've, I've just got a line in my plea um, colloquy that says exactly that. Do you understand that uh, this plea can t- be taken into consideration if you're ever again plead guilty or are found guilty of another crime? So the next issue is something that is near and dear to my heart is the weapons carry licenses or WCLs. This was one of those obligations that when it came out, the general response, I think, I think I was in a seminar at one of our winter conferences where people said, really? I watched people's heads explode all around the room. It was amazing. So under this section, this is 1611-129-E2. The judge of the superior or state court shall inquire of a defendant while being sentenced whether they have a weapons carry license. If they do, the judge is required to notify the judge of the probate court where that issue was licensed and then it's up to the probate judge to do whatever needs to be done. Now, as you all know, y'all have met my wife, Alice Paget. What did you call her? The My favorite Judge Paget. Yeah. Some people would say the better Judge Paget. She is a probate judge. And so I do hear about these from time to time. So you just, when you go to dinner that night, you're just like, oh, honey, by the way, Steve Smith has a um, weapons license and he got convicted of armed robbery. Yeah, contrary to popular belief, we don't talk about this stuff at the house. <laughs> Probably um, best. Unless it's an interesting, odd topic. But but all kidding aside, 
you are only required to send the notice to the probate judge who issued it. And if you want to know which probate judge issued it, ask the defendant. <laughs> and, <Right>. and, <laughs> I mean, they, what county was that? Yeah, in? what county? And they'll tell you because they went and paid for it because it's it's not cheap. Right. So I sort of thought that was the end of that inquiry. And not long ago, one of our really good NJO grads who who is very diligent about his job called me. He said, Judge, if I give somebody first offender, I don't think that that requires their weapons carry license to be suspended. Okay. A, that was the most conversation I had had about this statute since it came out. B, I, I have enough to do already. And so I understand it is my job to find out if the defendant has a weapons carry license and my duty to notify the probate judge who issued it. It is entirely possible that what I'm doing will have absolutely zero impact on that weapons carry license. I don't want to learn all that law. I don't want to be involved with that and the updates from the FBI on an annual basis or a weekly basis. I don't want to be involved in that. And does a, does, what if it's a, an attempt to commit instead of a completed crime? I'm just not getting involved with right. that. I've got enough to know. So the good news is just send the notice. And unlike the uh, cases with respect to deportation, you don't have to know the federal law. You don't have to know the state law. You don't have to know what the probate judge does. Just send the notification and they'll sort it out in the probate court. It's so much easier than trying to figure that out. And then my favorite judge pageant will take care of it. That's right. So waiver of rights. Now, Tane, a lot of people a few years ago, it became very vogue to talk about the Boykin rights. Boykin, by the way, is a case that was decided in 1969. Right. But all of a sudden, a few years ago, it sort of it sort of reemerged as a major issue. But Tane, if you if you follow Boykin to a T, have you followed the Uniform Superior Court rules? No. Um, Uniform Superior Court Rule 33.8 has some additional specific uh, rights that you are supposed to go over with the defendant that don't include uh, all or that include more than the Boykin rights. Boykin actually only relates to right to trial, right to confront witnesses, and right to remain silent. Those were the three that were mentioned in that uh, Supreme Court case way back when, and. Uh, there, there are simply more rights that have been added on to that since then. That's right. 33.8 says you have to talk about that right to a trial by jury that's required in Boykin, but you also have to advise the defendant that they would normally enjoy the presumption of innocence. You have to talk about the right to confront witnesses, again, something that came from Boykin, but you also have to tell the defendant that they would normally have a right to subpoena witnesses and evidence in their favor, that they would have a right to testify, and they would have a right to counsel. And then both Boykin and 33.8 say that you have to tell the defendant they would normally have a right to remain silent at that trial. You know, it's funny how sometimes people misunderstand things. I literally read one of the appellate cases that a very good lawyer was on the stand on an ineffective assistance claim and was talking about he read the defend that he had advised the defendant of his Boykin rights. And he had the form to prove it which was the 33.8 rights. Right. So he was actually informing them of a lot more than Boykin. Most practitioners don't differentiate between the rights that are required under the rule and the rights that are uh, enumerated in Boykin. You know, we're talking about the impact of the plea on the defendant here, and we, let's talk about the sex offender registry. Yeah. Um, don't forget that uh, the law makes it very clear that requiring a defendant to be registered as a sex offender is a significant penalty that is a direct consequence of certain crimes. And so uh, obviously you have to give the same kinds of notification, or at least the, the defense counsel has to give them notification of the fact that they will have to register as a sex offender. And there's some some 
pretty interesting case law in that Taylor case. Is that right, yeah. Wade? That's right. And, you know, this is another one of those things that it's a defense lawyer's obligation, but you have no way of getting involved in that relationship and breaking into that relationship. So it, the better path is for the judge to simply say, I'm going to advise you of the sex offender registry requirement. The defendant will acknowledge it. It's probably a part of the plea agreement written down somewhere on your forms. And then you can move on with, with confidence knowing that it has been handled. Yeah, there's a good discussion in the uh, in the state the Taylor versus State case that we've cited in your materials about uh, the difference between collateral consequences and direct consequences too. So that's something worth taking a look at. Yeah, I mean, generally, direct consequence is something that automatically flows from this conviction, whereas a collateral con- consequence is one that sometimes flows from this con- from this conviction. That's not the all. That's not the 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 final definition, but it's one that helps you get through the process. Tane, let's break here. Uh, I know the folks are probably enthralled and excited to hear the rest of our conversation, but just as a tease, we are going to talk about this new Collier case. That's right. So stay tuned. Thank you, folks, for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically Jim Henneberger uh, for their technical assistance and providing the studio for us. Thanks, as always, to Stephen Turner and Turner Up Media, who does his best to get as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to CSCJ, the Council of Superior Court Judges, for allowing us to handle NJO and their support in this project. Folks, these are our own opinions. They represent the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tane Kell and do not reflect the opinions of the Council of Superior Court Judges, UGA College of Law, ICJE, or really anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at our website at goodjudgepod.com or you can contact us on email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Folks, please rate and review our podcast on whatever listening app you may be using. It'll go a long way to help others find the podcast. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you feel like we need to say? No, that's all, Wade. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.